Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In his long and storied career as an economist, as an academic, as a university president, as a treasury secretary, and as an economic advisor, Larry Summers has been both an extremely impactful and sometimes controversial figure. As we look at the new administration and where our economy is today, uh, and what the state of the middle class is today. He has some uh, important insights and concerns about where we're going uh, after this last election. I visited with Larry Summers at Harvard the other day uh, to talk about all of this and more. Larry Summers, my old friend and, and colleague, I... Uh, you know, I always wonder how much one's life is predetermined. And uh, my mom was a uh, journalist, and then she went into qualitative research. She always said she named my sister and me uh, thinking that our names would look good in bylines. And, you know, you'd like to think you have free will, but I went into journalism. And then I went into politics, and I was heavily into qualitative research. You know where I'm going here. Uh, yes, you were David. born into sort of economics royalty. Your parents were both distinguished economists. You had relatives, Nobel laureates in uh, in economics. Um, did you was it? Did you always sense that you were going to follow in that path? Not always. My um, neither of my brothers uh, went into economics. One of my brothers is a doctor, and one of my brothers uh, is a lawyer. And I wouldn't say my parents ever tried to push me uh, into economics. In fact, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a mathematician uh, or a physicist. And as a kid, I was very interested in math and physics and uh, and science. And then two things uh, happened. Uh, one is I got very turned on to public policy and I saw economics as a way that I could be analytical and scientific and also engaged with thinking about policy questions, which were the questions that excited me most. And the other, frankly, was that I got to MIT and I saw what real mathematicians and real physicists uh, (laughs) were like, and I decided it would probably be better to do something where I was relatively good than something where uh, where I was uh, struggling. But then when I was at MIT, I was very much on the debate team and I was engaged by that. And most of the people who did that ended up going to law school. And so I fought pretty hard about being a lawyer because I liked uh, Arguing. to argue. Yes. Exactly. I, yes. I, 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 I learned lo- that myself. I, I, I love <laughs> to argue, but I 
decided that as a lawyer, for every hour you spent uh, arguing, you spent 10 proofreading, and uh, that I didn't want to have a boss, and that being an academic meant you didn't have to have uh, have a boss. And so I ended up deciding to go to uh, graduate school in economics. Maybe in some deep sense it was faded, but I didn't experience it as faded along the way. So when you were uh, – you went to MIT like when you were 16 years old. Were you interested yes. in public policy before that, like when you were a young kid? Yeah, I was always, interested in – Because these issues were talked about around your These table. issues were always uh, – were talked about not so much technical economic issues, but uh, politics and all of that. When I was a very young kid, I was interested in uh, baseball, but I was also all over following uh, Johnson beating Goldwater when I was ten. When I was ten year, when I was ten years old, and I was completely transfixed yeah. by the. 19, by the 1968 yeah. uh, election. And so I was always very, very interested. And I came to have a sense of uh, the moral uh, significance of economics. I remember that uh, the late Art Oaken was a close friend of my father's. Mm-hmm. And I remember the story, seems kind of weird to tell now, we should say he was, a, a, he was the CEA. He was the CEA. He was the CEA chairman uh, under, Lind, under Lyndon Johnson right. and was a kind of prominent economic advisor in subsequent uh, years. And I remember as a child, probably just after Art left uh, the CEA, hearing the story of how there had been a publication of the Commerce Department called BCD, Business Cycle Digest, but – the Johnson administration had renamed it Business Conditions Digest because they thought we didn't need to have a new a business cycle anymore because economists had figured out how to fine-tune the economy and avoid recessions. It, well, it didn't actually work out that way, <laughs> but it did leave me with a sense that doing what economists do could really have huge effects on the lives of millions of people. It's kind of – it's it's in keeping with the ambitions of that entire era. You know, you had these people who were flush with winning uh, World War II who had this confidence that there was no problem we couldn't master. And so the war on poverty and some of the other initiatives of the 60s, you know, Johnson saying we're going to wipe out po- poverty uh, and so on. Uh, yeah, it, it turns out to be more complicated than it seemed back in those heady days. The world is a complex place, but I think it's a good idea sometimes to uh, look at things not every day or every week or even every year, and uh, one does see progress, whether it's uh, in uh, the length of of people's lives, the extent to which they're able uh, to uh, read, the extent to which... uh, Violence uh, diminishes. I'm somebody who has uh, sort of been the principle of why I studied economics and in many ways been a kind of abiding faith of mine that um, with uh, better analysis and uh, generous spirit and a lot of determination, uh, the world can be made a better place. And I yeah. think with all the problems uh, – the world is a much better place than it was when I was a child, and America is a much better place of course, than it was when I was a child. 
good analysis and gener- generous spirits are not always in abundance uh, in in all our our uh, precincts. But um, you you got involved in politics. You drew, after you got your PhD at Harvard, you uh, in the eighties began to. Uh, advise candidates. Mike Dukakis, the governor I, of Massachusetts, ran for president. You helped advise him. I became interested in. I became very interested in policy and uh, all of that, and it shows the. Was the academy sh- too confining? I don't know that the academy was too confining, but I always felt that if you were going to understand the nature of truth, that was a great thing to do. But if you were going to work on investment incentives or uh, bank capital or tax policy, what was the point if you weren't connected to the actual debates in the world where uh, those things were going to be decided? And it was my immense good fortune that uh, I had been – I think I'd worked pretty hard at it. I think I'd been successful at – being helpful to a student uh, at Harvard, Jack Corrigan, who struggled uh, a bit at some stages when he was an undergraduate. And six years later, he was Mike Dukakis' deputy campaign manager. Yeah, he's a great, great Massachusetts politico. Yeah, absolutely. And it was his job to locate an economic advisor uh, for uh, the campaign and he didn't study hard enough to know that many economists, but he knew me. And uh, so there I was, and I was given a chance, and I learned an immense amount about politics and a certain amount uh, about uh, economics doing that. And that was when I met a lot of people who subsequently made a big difference uh, in my life, like uh, – Lloyd Benson and like Bob Rubin and uh, like uh, Gene Sperling and like uh, Sylvia Matthews and mm-hmm. Tom Donlin, a whole variety like a who's of people. Who of, uh, people who Clinton still have been very important in Democratic, administ- in, uh, in, uh, Democratic administrations. And I realized, um, I realized from that experience uh, something I often tell uh, young people that uh, being connected and having relevant experience is just worth a great deal. There aren't that many people who've given economic advice during a presidential campaign. And if you've done it once, that puts you way ahead of people who've never done it, who've never done it at all. And so having those kinds of experiences are really very, very valuable if public service is something you want to do as some part of your life. So you spent some time at the World Bank as the chief economist there. I should take a just a slight departure here and ask you about the World Bank and about international institutions because they, they seem to be under siege right now. Uh, what did you learn from your experience there about the significance of these institutions in terms of maintaining uh, global economic growth and particularly lifting those nations that, that needed uh, – Needed help. Well, before I went, first thing I learned was that global poverty is a very different phenomenon than what we think of as poverty in America. And during my time at the World Bank, I went places where 
and saw people where a bicycle was an immense luxury or where access uh, to clean water was something that was desperately craved. And I came to realize the very special place of the United States because it was very clear that what the United States thought had a very disproportionate effect on uh, what happened at the World Bank. I also saw that these institutions at their best literally can change the fate of hundreds of millions of people. During the time that I was at the World Bank, uh, there was a major budget and financial crisis in India. And to the point where India at that point had only a billion dollars of gold and they had to put it on a ship and send it to London so it could be collateral for a billion dollars so that the government would be able to meet its payroll. And the World Bank was able at that time to lend it $3 billion, which made an immense uh, difference in putting India on a trajectory where people actually started for the first time to see very rapid uh, growth uh, in living standards. So I'm a believer that the world is getting smaller, that there are going to be difficult problems, and that we need international institutions where people don't just talk, they do, and where what they do doesn't have to do with fighting or war. And I think the special feature of institutions like the World Bank, like the other development banks, like the International Monetary Fund, is that they're places where countries come together to cooperate and actually do things, not just talk about things. And the things they do can educate girls in societies where they otherwise wouldn't uh, get educated, develop uh, power sources that don't uh, do immense damage uh, to uh, the environment, prevent um, kids from being in places where the heat comes from indoor charcoal and does like the equivalent of packing of smoking uh, two packs uh, two packs a day. So I think these are profoundly important institutions, and I'm very fearful that uh, we're not going to maintain in the next generation the kind of support that uh, the United States has given them in the past. Well, well, part of the problem is that you have uh, – I'm sure there are people uh, who, if they heard you say what you just said in this country, would say, listen, I'm just trying to get by here, and uh, I'm less concerned about lifting people out of poverty somewhere else than not falling into poverty uh, myself. And that's the tension uh, that, you know, that, that sort of right-wing populism uh, has capitalized on. Right, and I, and I, and I relate to, to that concern. On the other hand, the contributions the United States makes to the international financial institutions all in is way under a tenth of one percent of the U.S. budget. Which is not understood. Nobody, people don't, people aren't able to see that. Each dollar we give, because those institutions can borrow money and because other countries contribute as well, is levered ten ten plus times uh, over. And look, these things are 
forward defense of U.S. interests. If a better job had been done of economically developing Afghanistan, we might not have had the trillion-dollar quagmire that's been Afghanistan uh, for the last uh, 15 years. If we did a better job of uh, economic development in North Africa, there might not be the refugee crisis of uh, the magnitude that uh, we are seeing. If we had been more successful in supporting economic uh, reform uh, in Russia, we might not be in uh, the new Cold War uh, that we're facing. So I don't think of the the work of these institutions as altruism. Mm-hmm. I think I don't think of them as soft power. I think of them as forward defense of U.S. interests. Since we're talking about capital, it seems like a propitious time to take a break for a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back with Larry Summers. You obviously played a huge role in the Clinton administration, first as Deputy Treasury Secretary, then as Treasury Secretary. Before we get into some of the specifics of what you did there, you know, I was, I was, I was thinking about this uh, the other day, how much luck plays in presidential cycles. You guys, not to diminish anything that you did, a very President risk. President Clinton risked a lot of political capital, raised taxes early in his administration to try and fight deficits. And uh, uh, you guys did a series of things that were really important. But you also had kind of an up uh, surge in uh, the economy led by the tech uh, bubble. Uh, And so the question, I guess, is how much does this stuff cycle on its own and how much does – do presidents impact on them? David, I think uh, presidents get uh, more blame for bad stuff that happens <laughs> and less and more credit for good stuff that happens than they deserve. I came to the view after – came to the view initially it always seemed quite odd to get as much credit for some of the good stuff that I think was caused by the – vicissitudes of the business cycle and the strength of the private sector. And I guess uh, I've come to the view in life that since I get blamed and <laughs> You'll take uh, it, presidents man. I work with get blamed for all sorts of things they didn't do, it's only fair to take credit for all kinds of things uh, that have uh, many causes. Now, but I also think Vince Lombardi got it right when he uh, when he said you make your – you make – uh, your breaks and yeah, he said he said luck is where uh, preparation and opportunity meet. Yeah, that's another yeah. one. Another yeah. observation is uh, some I don't remember who it was. One of the famous uh, golfers said, "You know, odd thing. The more I practice, the better the breaks I get." Yeah, and so I think it's also fair to say that we did have a big boom. Part of the reason we had a big boom was that we had surprisingly low interest rates and they spurred a lot of investment. And that had a lot to do with the tough choices that Bill Clinton made uh, regarding the budget deficit in an era that was completely different than the one we live in now, in an era where the problem really was uh, excessively uh, high costs of uh, 
capital. So I, I think the president is surely entitled mm-hmm. uh, to a great deal of credit uh, for the good economic performance uh, that took place in uh, the 1990s. And, and when you were there, you had uh, you were involved in a series of sort of international uh, crises uh, involving the finances of other countries, Mexico, Russia, some of Asia, and you 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 played a big role in resolving those, uh, and you helped modernize a, a kind of antiquated financial structure. One of the issues, obviously, that has arisen uh, uh, and is bandy about, like Bernie Sanders in debates would constantly raise Glass-Steagall. I always wondered whether people actually knew who Glass and Steagall were and what Glass-Steagall was. But but uh, the deregulation of the financial industry has uh, been hotly debated. Uh, and I know you have reflected on some of that. Um, so look, David, I, here's, here's kind of what I think. Um, with the benefit of foresight, there's obviously benefit of hindsight. There's much that I think could have been would have pursued uh, different uh, priorities, and maybe some of it should have been foreseeable at the, at the time. Uh, in some ways, uh, certainly, all the various things in Dodd Frank, if they had been legislated during the 1990s or had been legislated in the period between 2000 and 2008, would I think have been helpful. Uh, in mitigating uh, the uh, the financial crisis, on the other hand, I think that it's much too broad brush to speak of this in terms of regulation versus deregulation. Not all deregulation is bad, and not all regulation uh, is uh, good. Glass Steagall, the idea that banks and investment banks should be separated, had nothing to do with the 2008 financial crisis, nothing. If you think about the major institutions that were involved, Lehman Brothers, AIG, Bear Bear Stearns, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, none of them were combined banks and investment banks. And in fact, the ability to combine banks and investment banks, like when Bank of America bought Merrill Lynch, was actually very helpful in uh, resolving uh, the crisis. The country that came through the financial crisis best was uh, Canada. And uh, Canada has always had a banking system based on for the whole country, having five large banks that do banking and investment banking. So I think the idea that it's all about the combination of banks and investment banks, I don't think that's a a plausible view uh, to have. Could more have been done with respect to uh, derivatives? Yes. Was it imaginable that it would be done with a Senate that had uh, Phil Graham as the chairman of the banking committee? I don't think I don't uh, think so. But certainly, if I had it to do over again, we would have been caught trying uh, harder on some part of. Uh, those uh, issues. You know, the re- I think we did. I think we did, and I don't think this gets story gets told enough. Um, if you look at almost everything that is raised in connection with mortgages and predatory lending, Andrew Cuomo and I pushed hard. For Andrew legis- Cuomo was the HUD, was the HUD secretary, secretary at the time. Pushed hard for uh, fixing that, given the attitudes at the Fed at that time. 
and given the Republican Congress, uh, we didn't get anywhere. If you look at what was actually the biggest failure, the failures in the need to bail out uh, Fannie Mae and uh, Freddie Mac, their problems of being undercapitalized was something I'm proud to look back and say that I was able to warn against while I was Treasury Secretary. You know, Frankly, probably, the political pressures on both sides of that one um, were uh, were immense. A lot of Republicans now say, well, that was the cause of the crisis, Fannie Mae and, and Freddie Mac, and the GSEs were really um, the, the leading the way on that. The, the counterargument is that some of the private concerns that were involved in mortgage lending got into deeper water than Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But I, I'm, I'm eager to hear what your response to that. It seems, it seems too glib. Oh, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's reasonable to say that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac caused the crisis. On the other hand, we did have to put hundreds of billions of dollars in to bailing them out which we would not have done if they had been uh, adequately uh, capitalized. Didn't they so, follow the industry into no, the – No, no. They, they made very important, imprudent lending and mostly they had virtually nothing in the way of reserves and they were allowed to operate with very little capital because of the perception – that the government was uh, guaranteeing them. They had much less in the way of reserves and capital than any other financial institution uh, would have. And frankly, there was a kind of uh, unholy alliance of their shareholders who didn't want to have to hold large amounts of Mm -hmm. capital and people who wanted to see large amounts of lending uh, come from them. And it was a kind of dangerous situation that shouldn't have been allowed to fully metastasize. But there's nothing you could have done just about Fannie and Freddie that would have prevented these problems. I think if you had addressed that, if you had addressed predatory lending, uh, that would have been helpful. I also think that, and I think this is fair, that the people who had regulatory responsibility from 2000 to 2008 – as the crisis approached, bear very substantial responsibility. And I remember being appalled to see the Bush administration have some kind of summit on financial regulation. And the photo op of the summit was uh, the all the regulatory officials standing with the kind of saw you use to cut wood, sawing through uh, books of regulation to signal their attitude towards well, regulation. Well, guess what? It looks like uh, the same crowd is getting their tools out again. And I think we've got a, I think we've got huge risks that you can quibble with aspects of Dodd Frank, but if you went back to the pre Dodd Frank uh, world, you would be taking immense and systemic risks of another financial crisis. How, deep, so, how deeply concerned are you about that as you look at some of the rhetoric and some of the names that have surfaced in terms oh, of – Oh, I think um, some of it is uh, 
is uh, very, 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 very uh, scary. I think that uh, Congressman Henserling, uh, for example, who's been mentioned as a possible uh, Treasury Secretary, has a very systematic record of opposing most of the major steps that, in my view, are constructive in terms of making financial crisis uh, less uh, less likely. Others don't have as clear a record on uh, finan- on financial regulation, but the idea that we would uh, repeal uh, repeal Dodd Frank, which is something I that Trump, a, uh, that Donald Trump promised during the, I campaign. think that would be uh, I think that would be a catastrophic uh, kind of uh, kind of error. Uh, there can't be any question that banks need to have a bigger cushion of equity to protect against risk than they used to have, that they need to have more cash in the vault to deal with whatever may come, given what we've seen uh, may come, that there need to be much stronger protections for consumers. And all of that is in uh, Dodd-Frank. Are there some some rules that burden community banks excessively? There may be, and reforming those could could be the right thing. Are there other rules where there's just too much bureaucratic intrusion into the details of uh, ba- of uh, banking? Uh, there may uh, there may be as you as you know because we argued about it uh, <laughs> yes. at uh, at the time. I was never much of an enthusiast for the so-called Volcker rule, right. which stops various kinds of trading activities of banks because I thought by making there be fewer and fewer players in the markets, you might make them more unstable. And I didn't see how that would really do do much uh, to make banks uh, safer. And I think now that we have the Volcker rule, we do have more concerns about instability in markets. And so I'm not sure whether we should repeal it, given all that's gone into it. I probably wouldn't favor that. But at the same time, I don't think the responsible position is to say that uh, every single jot and tittle of the 2,700-page Dodd-Frank legislation should be treated as some kind of biblical text uh, that can't be altered. But right now, the dangers are all on the side of the pendulum swinging uh, too far back, and I think that's very scary. This is, by the way, the first time in all the year that we've been doing this uh, podcast that anybody has said jot and tittle on the on the podcast. So let that be noted. I want to talk to you about when we first met. Um, two aspects of it. Um, the first is the crisis. You came and uh, you know at a time when uh, when it was uh, the, this tidal wave was sort of headed our way. Uh, and I remember sitting in a room with you and you telling the president-elect that there was a one in three chance of a second Great Depression. How how frightening was it to be sitting in – I mean, I found it frightening, but I was not – I was not an economic advisor. Did – how frightening was it to you and the economic team to see the forces that were massing, the the wave that was coming? Certainly it was, by a wide margin, the most uh, frightening professional experience of uh, my life. Uh, During the 1990s, I had been 
involved in huge financial crises for a number of emerging markets, uh, Mexico, Korea, and so forth. But it gave me a kind of empathy for the policymakers I dealt with then that I probably hadn't had at the time because it feels very, very different when the crisis is in your country um, than it does when the crisis uh, is in uh, another another country. Uh, you know, most of the time, things in economics and things in the world work like thermostats. Uh, when there's a push in one direction, there's a push back in the other direction, and so the room gets back to normal temperature. Every once in a while, you have a phenomenon that's more like an avalanche, where the worse it gets, the worse it gets even faster. And that's what the economy uh, felt like uh, from about September of uh, 2008 to March or April, uh, maybe May, of uh, 2009. And I think the president uh, gets immense credit for having produced the sharpest one-quarter change um, from way negative growth to significantly positive growth, the biggest change from one quarter to the next that the United States economy has experienced since we had quarterly GDP figures. And some of that's a credit to some of the policies that we advocated. I think a huge amount of it is a credit to the sense of steady resolve and uh, confidence uh, that the president was able to project. And it was a remarkable uh, display for me of leadership capacity. Yeah, you know, I look back at that. I mean, I, I remember coming to work each day wondering whether we could keep the balloon in the air. And, uh, you know, there were there were obviously some very freighted questions, what to do about the banking industry, what to do about the auto industry. Um, but we look, I think that we have a kind of collective amnesia right now about exactly where we were eight years ago and just how fragile things were. What were the things that you, you said projecting confidence was one thing. From a policy standpoint, what were the things that were done that were absolutely critical to pulling America away from the, the abyss? And what are the things that should have been done or could have been done better? Okay, I think we did uh, three big things right. Uh, we committed through the Recovery Act a major injection of funds into the economy, over $800 billion, and a commitment to do what was necessary. There are people who've said it should have been bigger, and in a purely economic sense, uh, it should have been, uh, it should have been uh, bigger. I remember uh, – saying to many people at the time, I was a good deal heavier than I am uh, now. And people <laughs> yes, you're looking st- quite felt. And people would say, how big should it be? And I'd say, look, uh, I suppose I could lose too much weight and become anorexic, but it doesn't seem like a relevant risk starting where <laughs> I am now. And it doesn't seem to me that there's any risk that we're going to over fiscally stimulate or expand this economy. I actually think, and I give you, uh, give you, David, and Rahm Emanuel and Phil Shalero and others who worked with the president uh, credit, I think we got every dollar that was extractable from the Congress that we had yeah, at I that don't moment. Think the, I think and, that wasn't well appreciated. And the if, we had, were if we'd pursued such... a different strategy, 
I think we could easily have gotten less money uh, later. And so I think the I think I think that the judgments there were all political, and I have not heard, I've not heard, I've heard people second guess convincingly things that people, some of us have said on the economic side. I haven't heard any coherent political analysis suggesting that those of you who are on the president's uh, political and communications teams could have done something differently that would have gotten us uh, a larger, uh, larger stimulus. Yeah, I think history is going to be very, very good to him when that period is is, I, I, is, I think, is reexamined. I think on that second thing, second thing, and you know, here I'd give immense uh, credit uh, to uh, Tim Geithner. We found an approach. It was a combination of things: stress tests, certain announcements, variety financial facilities that uh, were enough to give confidence to the system to enable the banks to continue to function without uh, getting involved in uh, actually the government taking over the banks. You know, the British did that and the British government still hasn't been able to get out of the banks. What about the idea? uh, That it it took over. So I think Tim found uh, a very good uh, balance on that, and the president gave him support. And what about the enough. idea? Uh, what about the idea, Larry? And, and I, I agree. And in fact, it's 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 not well understood that all that money came back and then some from uh, the support that was yes. given to the banks. But what about the idea that uh, no one paid a price for it? That the bankers essentially uh, came back. Uh, and are have are back and fat and sassy, uh, but uh, there are still people all over the country who haven't recovered uh, from the. Well, first of all, the, the people who owe, it varies from bank to bank, but the people who owned stock in Bear Stearns or in Lehman or in Wamu or in Wachovia or in AIG essentially got wiped out. The people who owned stock in Citigroup or Bank of America, they but lost the, but the, they but lost ninety they lost ninety percent. How about of their the money. players who ran the, these programs? The, C, the CEOs, so the CEOs of the banks that were in serious trouble, they all got knocked out of they all got uh fired and most of them had most of their net worth wrapped up in uh their uh financial institutions. You know, one thing people say I can't evaluate from the perspective uh, that I have, which is how come people didn't go to jail? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it may be that people should have gone to jail and it may be there were wrong decisions made. I just can't judge that. What I do know is that stupidity is not a crime. And whether there were actual crimes committed and what actual crimes there were, uh, I can't I, – I'm not in a position to judge that the right decisions were made on that or the wrong decisions uh, were were made on that, but that's obviously an issue that legal historians will uh, will want to go back and look to in this. I think there is one other aspect of this, which is um, the way I always put it at the time was you can have a just war, and there can be victims in a just war where there's no justice, and in the same way, in a financial crisis where the basic objective is to restore confidence, there may be some people who benefit who don't deserve uh, to benefit. And those unjust beneficiaries are the same – are the other side of unjust us victims in wars. But at some level, we made a decision, and I would defend this decision totally, 
that if you had to choose between the restoration of confidence to allow the economic system to function and the achievement of vengeance, um, that probably the confidence was the more important thing. And it's very easy now after we've achieved confidence to say there could have been more vengeance and it still would have achieved confidence and – you know, we'll never know yeah. uh, whether that's the, the, right. The, the question is whether it's what, what you call vengeance, others justice. view as justice. I'm quite prepared to say it is justice, and I'm quite prepared to say that there was um, some cooperation with uh, the arsonists in putting out uh, the fire. The problem is if the arsonists are, only there, are the only people there and you have to put out uh, the fire – it's uh, hard uh, not to. It's hard not to uh, cooperate. So, in the whole of it, the shareholders lost their money. The CEOs of the institutions that got into a mess lost uh, their uh, lost lost their jobs. Though many uh, with with fairly comfortable. In some, case, in some cases, but but let me. Let, we don't. I don't want to belabor this. I just want to take a quick break, and then I want to ask you about another aspect of uh, of your work that seems very relevant now. When the the first time I remember meeting you was at a meeting advising the president uh, when he was a senator and running for president, and you made a very strong case for the the the, the uh, predicament of the middle class and that there needed to be more f- uh, focus on this. And you and I were talking before we started recording about these fundamental trends that um, technology – in fact, you could argue that part of the economic crisis had to do with technology as well because the rapidity with which trades were made were almost impossible to detect. They were happening so fast and they were all mechanized and so on. But work is now being mechanized. And you identified this a long time ago at a prodigious rate, and a lot of jobs that were good-paying jobs are now disappearing. That seems that was a motivating factor behind a lot of the rage that you saw in the electorate, particularly among non-college-educated white working-class voters that redounded to Donald Trump's benefit. Where is this all going in our economy, and what do we do about it? Because technology is churning faster than ever. Start with this, David. Uh, in 1965, one in 20 men in the United States between the ages of 25 and 54 weren't working. Today, even after eight years of recovery, it's only one in seven. It's one in seven men between the ages of 25 and 54 who aren't working. And if those trends continue by 2050, it could easily be one in four or one in three. Men between the so ages of 25 and 54. A third of men in that who category are, are not working. Not, not working. And, you know, that's got staggering implications for families, for what kind of role models uh, kids have, for what happens in terms of crime, for the health of communities, for the risks of uh, drug addiction. So I think that finding work for everyone is going to be the central challenge of our politics over uh, the next uh, generation, we're not going to solve that problem by scapegoating uh, trade agreements. You can argue their merits in either direction, but to say that the trade agreements we've had 
are the main reason or a large reason why this has happened. How much is trade is versus not, technology well, the cause most of this? For, for, the point I'd want to make first is that most of what is global – most of what is – caused by trade or globalization is not caused by trade agreements. What Americans do not understand is that most of, most part, the United States didn't have any important trade barriers 30 years ago before these trade agreements. People could sell their products here, really. Before NAFTA, people in Mexico could mostly sell whatever they wanted to sell in the United States. Well, the question is really about these factories moving. So it's not the trade agreements. And we didn't have any laws that said factories weren't allowed to move. And so the question really is what we can do to make ourselves as attractive an environment as possible. And what does that come down to? We need to make sure we have a big, strong market, and that means we need macroeconomic policies that don't fetishize inflation, but instead focus on achieving adequate demand. That's why I felt it was so important that the Federal Reserve keep interest rates down and that we engage in fiscal expansion. We need to have uh, projects that put people to work. It is crazy that a country that can borrow money at 2% for the long term in a currency that it prints itself, that has one in seven men out of work, that has very low materials costs, lets LaGuardia Airport languish – in the form that it is, unless there be well, 30,000 schools. And this has been a battle between the without, president and Congress. Without Chip right. now the president's Donald, pushed. Don, Donald Trump, Donald Trump may be on the right side of it. It's hard to tell. You've he's, said that the way he's talking about infrastructure, right. the way they're fashioning this is not going to be helpful. If, if, it's all, if it's all private, if it's all through tax credits for infrastructure projects that earn a toll, that's not going to be most of the important infrastructure projects. That's not going to be fixing the potholes. That's not going to be fixing uh, the schools. That's not going to be repairing the uh, escalator at, uh, LaGuardia, at LaGuardia Airport. So there's scope to do something, but the details are going to have to evolve a lot. And, of course, the last part of this is our education system. And we don't put enough resources into it. Teaching isn't the kind of valued and honored profession it should be. We don't have the kinds of accountability and standards. And I don't know that we've even thought about what kids need to learn uh, in a modern way. Every 11th grader in America learns trigonometry. Well, we don't do surveying anymore. And so the cosine of an angle really isn't very important. But I didn't think it was that no, important when I was Right, it probably, wasn't, it probably wasn't <laughs> when you were there either. And, but there's no job, nothing, that I've done since I left school, and I'll bet, David, nothing you've done since you left school, were you able to do alone. It did it involving working with other people and coordinating with other people and cooperating with other people, and we don't put nearly enough emphasis on uh, teaching that uh, in uh, our schools. So I think the government's going to have to take a much larger role in assuring that everybody's prepared for work. And, you know, one thing that that I, one thing I've missed in our debate and one thing where I kind of think our party has gone a little wrong is we are concerned about the burdens of college debt and we're right to be concerned about those burdens. Yeah, but what about But, you know, it? the half the population that doesn't get to go to college, right. they have an even bigger problem. Right. And I think that if we're going to be progressive and if we're going to commit ourselves to the 
people who've traditionally been the constituency of the Democratic Party. I want to see what we're going to do to support the transition to work and the transition to adulthood for the people who don't have a chance to go to college or the people who don't choose uh, to go to college. And I think that is a uh, huge, uh, huge imperative for us uh, going forward. So well, let me ask you just to, to finish up on, on where we're at. Um, Trump has, uh, and it, uh, Congress appears ready to move on an unfunded tax cut of uh, fairly big magnitude. Uh, he has uh, talked, we, talk, we mentioned infrastructure. He has said he will not touch uh, entitlement uh, program, Social Security and Medicare. Um, how does this how does this happen without massive uh, new debt? And I, I just remember back when we were being lectured, you and I would go over to Congress sometimes and get lectured on how burdensome debt was. Uh, how does this how does this happen without massive new levels of debt? It doesn't. Uh, at today's interest rates, today's low interest rates, I don't think austerity and reducing debt is our central priority. Mm -hmm. I think our central priority is getting the economy growing. What I'm worried about, though, is that we're going to do tax cuts that are going to cripple government uh, for a generation. Think about, for example, the proposal that's been made to eliminate the gift in the estate tax. If you do that, then every billionaire in America is going to set up their next five generations of their family in trusts over the year after you do that. And even if you raise the estate tax and the gift tax back after that, the money's all going to be gone and the tax base is going to be gone for another generation. And so I'm not just worried that we're going to do imprudent things. I'm worried that we're going to do irreversible and imprudent things. That will cripple, that cripple, cripple us um, for a generation going forward. And so I think the challenge uh, for those of us who are going to be resisting moves in the wrong uh, direction is going to be to distinguish between many, many things that we don't like and to put all the energy we can into the things that are irreversible and will compromise the country for a long time. Yes, into fighting and resisting those and making the case for their economic illogic. I I just want to ask you um, two more questions, and um, and I'll let you go, Um, which I I don't – we'll edit that out. But um, one I should have asked earlier, Um, Mary Jo White announced her resignation – as head of the Security Exchange Commission, that was interpreted as opening the door to uh, a rush of deregulation. Were you concerned about that uh, news, uh, and do you see that as a harbinger of uh, of, of deregulation? Look, uh, presidents of the United States fairly quickly are able to choose the regulators they want. Barack Obama was able to choose uh, regulators who were serious and vigorous and to get them into place in the first few months of his administration. So while I was disappointed to see Mary Jo White's resignation, once I saw the election result, I had processed that we were going to get the kind of regulation that Donald Trump preferred. And that makes me very, very 
uh, nervous. And I hope that uh, sometimes uh, people uh, surprise. I remember many, many years ago, uh, people like you and me, David, uh, were um, very upset about Surgeon General Everett Koop. Yes, I remember. And we thought he was going to be a conservative who was going to undercut all kinds of values uh, that we had. And he turned out to be a huge and effective fighter for uh, public health. Mm-hmm. And I think that wasn't the story. That wasn't the usual story in the Reagan administration, but it was the story in his case. And we're going to have to hope for some of those stories. I must in say financial the, re- regulation. the repeal of Dodd-Frank and um, ramp, uh, rapid deregulation is a strange kind of populism. Uh, and you got to wonder whether the people who elected Donald Trump saw this as um, as their mission. But I've he, made a, um, I've David, I, I've over the period when Donald Trump has been uh, uh, running and with more intensity in the week since his uh, election, I've been reading about the history of populism around the world and. You know, the most virulent forms of it are in uh, Latin America. And if you look at Juan Perón in uh, Argentina, this is exactly what it was. A lot of rhetoric of national pride about the middle class and then a lot of giveaways to the uh, friends and cronies of the president. So I think often this kind of nationalist populist appeal uh, comes with a set of policies that subvert the interests of the very people on whose behalf but the campaign is run. But it's on the rise all over Europe. It's all and over. All and, the I don't, and I don't economies. think it's not, it's not just that it's going to be bad for the economy overall. I think the people who are going to lose uh, most are the people who, in whose name these policies are being pursued. And that's why I uh, worry very much about the situation of the American middle class. Larry Summers, thank you so much thank for you. your time, for your friendship. and uh, Thank you. And we, we look forward to hearing from you down the line. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.